1: To create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: In the 1970s, the term used for the movement against oppression of African Americans was the Black Liberation Movement. The term for changing The male chauvinism and the movement that we now know as feminism was the women's liberation movement. There was also the gay liberation movement. So it was very natural to try to put animal liberation into this context. Uh, What it had in common with these other movements is the idea that there is a systematic ideology that leads to the oppression of uh, uh, one group by another, that there's a, a dominant group that uh, oppresses and the other groups and takes advantage of them, exploits them, and that they need to be liberated from this oppression. And so the liberation is not really the physical liberation, although clearly that's part of it when you have animals closely confined in factory farms. But it's the liberation of our ideas, of our of our thought about. the the proper status and the proper treatment of this group of beings.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Peter Singer. Widely acknowledged as the intellectual founder of the animal rights movement, Peter Singer is Iowa W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. The best-selling author of Animal Liberation, arguably the founding text of the modern animal rights movement, and The Most Good You Can Do, among other works. He lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and Melbourne, Australia. Professor Singer's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2020's Why Vegan? Eating Ethically, published by W.W. Norton & Company. Even before the publication of his seminal Animal Liberation in 1975, Peter Singer, one of the greatest moral philosophers of our time, unflinchingly challenged the ethics of eating animals. Now, in Why Vegan, Singer brings together the most consequential essays of his career to make this devastating case against our failure to confront what we are doing to animals, to public health, and to our planet. From his 1973 manifesto for animal liberation, to his personal account of becoming a vegetarian in the Oxford Vegetarians, and to investigating the impact of meat on global warming, Singer traces the historical arc of the animal rights, vegetarian, and vegan movements from their embryonic days to today, when climate change and global pandemics threaten the very existence of humans and animals alike. In his introduction, and in The Two Dark Sides of COVID-19, co-written with Paola Cavalieri, Singer excoriates the appalling health hazards of Chinese wet markets, where thousands of animals endure almost endless brutality and suffering but also reminds Westerners that they cannot blame China alone without also acknowledging the perils of our own factory farms, where unimaginably overcrowded sheds create the ideal environment for viruses to mutate and multiply. Spanning more than five decades of writing on the systemic mistreatment of animals, Why Vegan features a new topical introduction, along with nine other essays. Written in Singer's Pellucid prose, Why Vegan asserts that human tyranny over animals is a wrong comparable to racism and sexism. The book ultimately becomes an urgent call to reframe our lives in order to redeem ourselves and alter the calamitous trajectory of our imperiled planet. Welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be with you, Mark. So first off, it's, it's an honor to speak with you. I, I was born in 1979 four years after Animal Liberation was published. So I wasn't around to witness those those early years. I grew up in the world that you and your Oxford colleagues and other animal advocates helped make, and I'm trying in my own way to do my part. So it's it's really wonderful to get to speak to you today.
2: Great. Yes, it is uh, a, a different world, I guess, the one you, you've grown up in from the one that uh, I grew up in.
0: Well, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's my final question, is to ask you about that. Um, as a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your your background, and how you came to care about animals.
2: Right. Uh, so I can certainly talk about my background. I was born in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, my parents had come to Melbourne. In 1938, after living in Vienna, fleeing the Nazis because they were Jewish. But they wanted to make me kind of as Australian as possible. It was a, those times of when migrants were expected to assimilate. So I grew up in Melbourne and as a relatively normal Australian boy. I suppose I was conscious of the, the background. Went to the University of Melbourne. Was originally going to study law, which in Australia is an undergraduate degree. But a counsellor looked at my results for the final year of high school and said I might find law a little bit dull. Why don't I combine it with an arts degree and go on with things that I'd been interested in at school, like history? So I did that, but as well as doing history, I took philosophy and I got interested in that. I got offered a scholarship to go on with uh, writing a master's degree in philosophy before I'd actually finished the law degree, so I never completed the law degree. I fin- did the masters, then I got offered a, another scholarship to go to Oxford, which was an exciting opportunity. And by this time, I was I was married. I'd uh, married during the masters degree, so I went to Oxford. And uh, all of this time, so you know, I'm now a graduate student. I'd been in, involved in politics. I'd been actually the president of a group against uh, conscription for the Vietnam War. But I never really had any interest in in animals in particular. I wasn't somebody who wanted to have cats or dogs uh, around me. And I never thought of animals as raising any serious moral questions. After I'd been in Oxford a year or so, I just happened to have lunch with somebody who, a Canadian graduate student called Richard Keshen, who was a vegetarian, which was very unusual in those days. I don't think I'd actually met a vegetarian uh, until that time. Um, if I had, it was probably um, an Indian who you know, was a vegetarian because he was a Hindu, which right. wasn't really going to interest me. And I, so I asked him why he was a vegetarian and he said uh, something pretty straightforward. Like, I, I don't think it's right to treat animals the way they'd retreated to be turned into into meat, um, the meat which I was at that moment eating. And so I asked him why not, and he told me that a lot of animals were being taken off the fields and put inside in big sheds, and their lives were pretty miserable. The only concern was to produce their flesh as cheaply as possible. And I didn't know any of this. Um, So uh, I looked into it more. I talked to a couple of other friends that uh, Richard had had, Uh, And I did become convinced that this is an important issue, that uh, I couldn't really, I talked to my wife about it, that we agreed we couldn't really justify continuing to support these systems of treating animals. And that's where all of that started.
0: And at the time, very little had been published, right? I think, I I believe her name, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Ruth Harrison or Harrington. She had written Animal Machines, I think, but... Apart from that, there 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 wasn't really much literature on the subject matter.
2: You're right. That uh, Ruth Harrison's uh, Animal Machines was the only book about uh, factory farming, um, and uh, I got hold of it and was, you know, that was part of the thing uh, informing myself about it that led uh, us to become vegetarian. I don't think there was anything else then. Um, nobody much, well, uh, Bridget Brophy, the novelist, had written an article for the uh, Sunday Times, I think, one of the one of the English newspapers, weekly newspapers, um, about sort of animal rights, um, which I hadn't noticed. It had been a couple of years before I came to England, I think, that she wrote it. So there was that piece, but there wasn't really much, I, I don't think philosophers were really writing about it, and uh, one of the other Canadians that Richard knew, uh, Rosalind Godlovich was in the process of writing something and she and her husband and another philosopher called John Harris were um, editing a book called animals, men and morals. So they were already sort of further down that track of thinking about the ethics of animals at the time, but it hadn't been published at that stage. And so obviously I hadn't read or heard about it.
0: Right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to ask you about the the Oxford group uh, in a little bit, but In the meantime, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your professional life. So you're a philosopher and a bioethicist. If it's possible to ask you to generalize beyond your interest in animals, were someone completely ignorant of philosophy to ask you what your philosophy is? And I know that's not really a coherent question, but what ideas or framework do you use to understand the world? So in terms of of understanding the world as a whole...
2: I look for evidence and argument about how the world is, uh, and I think, broadly speaking, science provides that evidence and that understanding. So my view of the world is, I would say, a kind of a materialist one. That is, that uh, I, I, not, uh, I don't see the evidence for believing in entities like. A divine being or a divine creator. In fact, uh, the evidence seems to certainly go against the idea of a divine creator who's omniscient, omnipotent, and an omnibenevolent and good. Because I can't see that such a being would have created a world like this. And similarly, I have no reason to believe that there's a life after the death of a physical body. So, you know, in terms of how we get to be here, I think that. Evolutionary theory provides the best uh, hypothesis for that, and uh, there's a lot of evidence for it. So that's, that's my broad outlook on the world. We, you know, we, we are here. We've evolved from simpler beings. Uh, and then, of course, the ethical questions start arising. So what should we do? How should we act? And that's the main area that I work in, and there it's quite straightforward to say that I'm a utilitarian, That means that I think the right act is the one that has the best consequences for all of those affected by it. And by best consequences, I mean ones that do the most to improve the well-being of all of those affected, so to promote their happiness, reduce their suffering and misery. Uh, And all of those affected includes all beings who are capable of experiencing pleasure or pain, Uh, and not just those that exist now, but also those uh, who will exist in the future.
0: So I thought we could uh, begin with a a very general question. Your your book is called, Why Vegan? So upfront, before we get lost in the weeds, why should the listener consider going vegan? The listener should consider going vegan
2: because that's the best way to not be complicit in the suffering that we inflict, the vast quantity of suffering that we inflict on non-human animals in order to turn them into food for us. Secondly, uh, going vegan is uh, a very good way of reducing your greenhouse gas outputs. Uh, The uh, animal production industry is a major contributor to climate change, and so you can avoid that. It's also true that we uh, waste food, particularly when when we feed grains grains or soybeans to factory-farmed animals. Uh, That's actually a, a wasteful process, which ends up with less food, with less nutrients than we started with. And finally, in this time of the pandemic, confining tens of thousands of animals, crowding them into sheds in stressed conditions, is an ideal way to produce new viruses. And has, although this particular novel coronavirus seems to have come from wild animals that were eaten in, or for sold in the markets of Wuhan. The previous pandemic, the swine flu pandemic of 2009 came out of a, a North Carolina factory farm. And we've also had uh, avian versions of avian flu that have come out of chicken farms. So there's a public health reason Uh, As well for avoiding, particularly the products of factory farms,
0: right. And in addition to avoiding pandemics, there there are health benefits. So it's not just less uh, less detriment to human health, but there are health benefits. And one point that I, I think you missed you you hit climate change, but there's also species collapse. All of the land usage that's required for agriculture and for Maintaining the, the crop base that's used to support the agriculture requires enormous amounts of, of land, including forest land. So that has an incredible impact on species sizes, biodiversity, all of the above.
2: Yes, that's that's certainly true. Agriculture is the the major way in which we change the surface of the of the planet, at least the land surface of the planet. And producing animals is a very wasteful way of doing that. So it means that we're using more land than we otherwise would have. And that does obviously reduce biodiversity.
0: You chose the word liberation for the title of your, your famous and influential work animal liberation published in 1975. Certainly liberation and the ideas of anti-oppression and exploitation have lost none of their importance. And yet I would say even still today for most people, animal liberation isn't top of mind. Why did you choose this term liberation and in particular animal liberation? What was the context then? And do you feel that it's changed at all since then? Do you feel that a lot has changed or not very much?
2: Well, the terminology has certainly changed and I probably would not choose that title if I were publishing the book today, but in the 1970s, The term used for the movement against oppression of African-Americans was the Black Liberation Movement. The term for changing the male chauvinism and the movement that we now know as feminism was the Women's Liberation Movement. There was also the Gay Liberation Movement. So it was very natural to try to put animal liberation into this context. Uh, What it had in common with these other movements is the idea that there is a systematic ideology that leads to the oppression of uh, a, a one group by another that there's a, a dominant group that uh, oppresses and the other groups and takes advantage of them exploits them and that they need to be liberated from this oppression and so the liberation is not really the physical liberation although clearly that's part of it when you have animals closely confined in factory farms but it's the liberation of our ideas of our of our thought about the the proper status and the proper treatment of this group of beings
0: i'm just curious you said that you perhaps wouldn't use that term now what is there a term that you think is better it's not easy for me because a lot of people would say animal rights is
2: the is the natural term to use and in fact you know, people are more likely to talk about the animal rights movement, and often I see quotes saying that uh, my book was a, f- a founding text of the animal rights movement or triggered the animal rights movement, or even some people say it was the Bible of the animal rights movement. Um, and in a popular sense, I'm quite happy to use the term animal rights. But because I'm a utilitarian, as I said before, I don't think morality starts with rights, I don't think rights are basic. I think rights are, if you like, a kind of a, a second level of moral safeguards against abuse that uh, is certainly useful, and I therefore support protecting the rights of oppressed groups. But if, 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 I, if I were to think about it philosophically, my argument would not be that animals have rights it might be that we ought to grant legal rights uh, to animals to protect them, but uh, so there's a sense in which I'm not philosophically uh, an advocate of animal rights, and and therefore it wouldn't be easy for me to find uh, a good replacement, a good short replacement for the term animal liberation.
0: Well, so maybe then liberation is the right term for the for your project, and. You have the the utilitarian project that sees the cause as separate from rights, simply a matter of suffering and alleviating suffering. And there are the rights people that think it is rights are fundamental and they should have fundamental. And we have two projects that are working in parallel, but towards slightly different aims.
2: Yes, I think that's a reasonable way of putting it. And of course, I I do work together with lots of people who regard themselves as animal rights advocates, and, and that's perfectly fine.
0: A central idea in your philosophy is the principle of equal consideration of interests. We read in Why Vegan, for example, that, quote, this book is intended for people who are concerned about ending oppression and exploitation wherever they occur, and in seeing that the basic moral principle of equal consideration of interests is not arbitrarily restricted to members of our own species, end quote. Could you talk to us about the principle of equal consideration of interests?
2: Yes, certainly. That's that is the fundamental uh, moral principle which underlies my views about animals, and it's obviously part of the general utilitarian view that says that pain is pain, pain is pain matters, pleasure matters too, of course, in a positive way, and just as we, uh, I hope all of your listeners would agree that. Uh, it, does, it it's not relevant to how bad pain is, that it's the pain of a, a, a white person or a black person or a person of color or a male or a female. So I think it's also true that it doesn't matter whether the pain is a pain of a human being or of a being of another species. What does matter is, is how bad is the pain and how is it experienced. Those things certainly matter. So the principle of equal consideration of interests essentially says we should give the same weight to um, similar interests of of all of those who have interests, irrespective of their race, sex, species, and so on. So it doesn't mean that in every respect humans and non-human animals get the same weight, but it does mean that if we can compare their pains or their pleasures and we say there's no reason to think that they're suffering less than a human might in some similar circumstances, then their suffering is to be given equal weight with the suffering of of the human.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: Right. It's it's meaningless to attempt to quantify the the respective suffering of humans versus a different species. And it's it, it's meaningless, it's impossible, it's beside the point. But I do think, I think probably this is from your writings, but there's an argument that I've heard where there, there is a sense in which it could very meaningfully be said that animals in, in a particular sense may suffer more because at least humans are able to understand the circumstances of the situation they're in. Whereas with animals, if they're shoved into a, a freight car and transported 300 miles in pitch black, they haven't been able to sit down in two days, they haven't eaten, they haven't had any water, and then they're put onto a conveyor belt going towards something that smells like blood, the animals are totally... Unaware of what's happening to them and and why. And I I do think that the when you drill into these questions, it's not to say that they suffer more or less. I, I don't think that's a meaningful thing to to discuss, but I do think when you when you look into the question of animal suffering, there's there's a lot there. And in fact, that's that is my next question. So Jeremy Bentham very famously wrote, quote, the question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer, end quote, in arguing against using animals' lack of human reason or language as justification for their exploiting, exploitation. So the question then becomes, can animals suffer? And I'm, you are very familiar with this, so I will ask you, although I will refer the reader to the internet and the literature, there's plenty that has been written about this, but what grounds do we have for assuming that animals are capable of suffering? The grounds for assuming that animals are capable of
2: suffering are, are various. One is that we can look at the anatomy and physiology and find similarities with our own. That may not be true of all animals. Let's let's talk about vertebrates just for the moment. So, uh, in the case of vertebrates, they have nervous systems that are similar to ours, that are organised with a central brain and some of the physiology is the same. So, for instance, uh, the same kinds of analgesics, that pain relievers that work in us, things like aspirin, will work in fish. Although fish are, you know, relatively far removed from us in, in terms of their evolutionary origin, as compared to, say, with uh, social mammals, with certainly with primates, but also with uh, other mammals. So, so that's a similarity that uh, there are these. Looks like they have similar kinds of pain receptors and pain transmission, and uh, that's that's the first part. Secondly, we can look at their behavior, and uh, obviously we can recognize similarities in pain behavior. If you tread on the paw of your dog while your dog is having a nap in the doorway, um, and your dog will, you know, yelp and get up and maybe favor the uh, the leg if it was badly trampled and, and behave in ways that are quite similar to the way that your child would behave if your child was had the hand fingers trodden on or toes trodden on. So so we, we see the analogy in the in the behavior. And now what we've got is similar nervous systems resulting in similar behavior to what we would feel and in similar circumstances to when we would feel pain. So It seems a little unparsimonious, if you like, to suggest that although all this is similar, there's something quite different going on in their conscious awareness. Much better and more in principle, with scientific simplicity, to say uh, something similar is going on. The the third factor that puts these sorts of things together is that we know that we have a common evolutionary origin. and therefore, it's reasonable to assume that when we have similar anatomy and physiology and similar behavior, that it it is does have the same explanation. Uh, and I mention that just because somebody might say, well, we could build a robot that would show pain behavior, you know, that uh, when you when you trod on its foot, it said, ouch, and yelped and picked up the foot and hopped around and so on. Um, and of course we could. But if we built that, robot deliberately designed to mimic that kind of behavior without having the same sort of nervous system then we wouldn't have a reason to believe that the same thing was going on but because we have this common evolutionary origin it's much more reasonable to suppose that the same thing is going on of course i should add speaking about robots if we constructed a robot in a very different way that had so much uh, general intelligence that it became reasonable to suppose that we'd actually created a conscious being, um, then the interest of the robots in not feeling pain would count as the interest of animals do.
0: Right. I, I was going to bring up actually evolution. I, I think in addition to the fact that we we share a similar evolutionary heritage, so that gives us confidence, but also the the reason that pain evolved was as a defense mechanism and as a self-support mechanism. Creatures feel pain so that if they're put into a situation where they're in danger, they can move away from the danger and and get out of that situation. So it, it simply, it just makes common sense that all of these creatures that have evolved to survive and to reproduce would feel pain so that when they were hurt or injured or stepping on something hot or cold or something was stinging them or the litany of possible things that could be injuring them, they would they would move away from that thing. So again, I think Occam's razor across the board. and certainly I like it's just a, it's the cherry on top, but I like that the fact that there are analgesics that we, we see in the behavior that the analgesics are are working. That to me seems I don't, I don't think we needed that to assume that animals are capable of, of feeling pain and suffering, but I think that, that is that is a quite compelling d- little detail on the argument.
2: Yeah, you're quite right. We didn't need it. And obviously people believed in common sense, people have believed for millennia that uh, animals can can feel pain. In fact, my next book uh, coming out in April with Norton is an abridged and edited version of a Roman novel, The Golden Ass by uh, Apuleius, which is about a man who gets turned into a donkey, and about all of the experiences that the donkey has, and it clearly shows a lot of empathy with the suffering of of, don- of a donkey. So you know the Romans already knew that animals can suffer, even if often they were cruel to them. But some people were concerned about that suffering. Uh, so we didn't we didn't need all that science. This is kind of common sense. But uh, it's nice to see science back it up and support it in in the ways that it does. Let me add one more thing to what you just said that's that's relevant. You talked about the evolution of pain as a way of, as a defense mechanism, as a way of uh, escaping, moving away from uh, sources of pain that are likely to be destructive to the organism. And that's that's true. But as I say in the preface to why vegan, that's also a reason why, strictly speaking, I think, uh, on my view, you don't have to be 100% vegan because among animals, some don't move away. The obvious examples are uh, the bivalves, like oysters and clams and mussels. Uh, and they also have very rudimentary nervous systems, and the evolutionary connection between us and them is very remote. So I think it's reasonable to believe that they don't feel pain, um, and therefore that the concern for the interests of animals doesn't mean that it's it's wrong to eat oysters and clams and mussels and if they can be produced in environmentally friendly ways then uh, i don't see an objection to that
0: right the environmentally friendly ways is is crucial there another another sort of philosophical point that that comes up i i am a vegan and people ask me if if they if they really perfect the the you know the the lab the lab grown meats would you consider eating that and and my first question is immediately first I need to know what the environmental impact is if it if it truly is as, as efficient as plants then perhaps I would but if if they can't get the efficiency that low then that is a relevant factor as well it's not it is about suffering and and pain but it's not only about suffering and pain there are there are other things that are also relevant that's certainly true but I I support and
2: encourage the Development of what you've called lab-grown meat—it wouldn't be sold under that label, of course. It might be called cellular meat or cultured meat, because unfortunately, you know, we haven't made fast enough progress in moving people away from meat, and uh, that has, as we've been saying, disastrous implications for animals, for climate, for biodiversity, uh, and for public health. So. If we could produce meat at the cellular level, grown you know, just without ever having been part of a, a, a living organism, uh, and if that led people who now eat meat to switch to that kind of cellular meat, then that would clearly be an excellent thing because it would uh, avoid these harmful consequences. And the uh, early indications are that, at least as far as climate change is concerned, I've seen estimates that it will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 97% as compared to for example, beef produced from a, a steer grazing right. in a field or a feedlot.
0: I I agree with you 100% I, I, I was not I did not mean to suggest that I'm questioning whether or not we should head in that direction just that I, I've already been converted <laughs> you know I'm currently eating only plants so will I, move back in the direction of eating meat if it's lab grown perhaps i haven't i haven't made that decision yet but for me i would just want to know more but with definitely unquestionably if we could if we could in the in the short term if we could move towards cellular grown meats or however however it, it is phrased i think that would be an incredible incredible step in the right direction yes I totally agree so playing devil's advocate I'm going to argue that we should not have to consider the interests of other species due to what I am alleging is their lesser self-awareness. So as a devil's advocate, I am arguing hypothetically that humans have self-awareness and that animals do not have self-awareness. So when that argument is presented to you, why should we have to take their interests into consideration?
2: Well, you quoted Bentham earlier saying the question isn't whether they can reason or whether they can talk, but can they suffer? And I don't think that self-awareness is a requirement for suffering, for um, experiencing pain. Uh, I, th- I think that it, it does make it different, and uh, you could have arguments that pains of beings who are not self-aware are lesser forms of suffering than those that are, but you know this goes back to to what you were saying before. It's in some circumstances they may be lesser, in some circumstances they may be greater because um, they don't understand what's happening, but they do. But they don't like it. Um, you know, it's it's distressing, it's frightening, it's terrifying, and it's maybe physically painful, or they may simply be thirsty or stressed or Cold or hot, I think those things are still forms of suffering, whether the being is self-aware or not. I don't think self-awareness is a necessary requirement for having the capacity to suffer.
0: You all, you also make a what I consider a very compelling argument that if we think about human infants or humans who have certain developmental disabilities, any any way that any argument that we try to make to justify difference in treatment that can be turned against us and used against other fellow humans, just about.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, And that's what shows, I think, the the clear speciesism of those who use this argument to justify uh, continued uh, maltreatment of animals, continued factory farming or other forms of, of mistreatment but would never think of using that argument to justify similar treatment of human infants who are, you know, if if animals are not self-aware, if if other mammals are not self-aware, or birds, then uh, human infants are certainly not self-aware in, let's say, the first month of their life. And similarly, there are humans who, as a result of uh, genetic abnormalities or perhaps uh, severe brain damage during birth, are never going to be self-aware. And uh, yet nobody suggests that it's okay to do research on them, painful uh, or fatal research on them in the way we do with animals. So I think this is really often used as an excuse for saying, this is why I can continue to, to eat animals or to be complicit in the mistreatment of animals when people actually wouldn't really follow through. It's, it's really simply saying, they're not like us. They're not members of our species. Uh, and that's why it's okay
0: to treat them in this way. So in, in Why Vegan, you list a number of handicaps that the animal liberation movement has in comparison with other liberation movements. I, I love this. I think this is incredible. I've, I have this in head. my head, I walk around, I, I repeat this to, to random strangers that I encounter. Here's a few handicaps that the animal liberation movement has to face. The members of the exploited group cannot themselves make an organized protest against the treatment they receive. Almost all of the oppressing group are directly involved in and see themselves as benefiting from the oppression. We eat meat. We wear leather. Perhaps we use animals for labor. And third is the habits of diet, but also of thought, which lead us to brush aside descriptions of cruelty to animals as just emotional. So these are indeed significant handicaps. And because a lot of the people that we're speaking to don't see that there is a problem, these are very, very important. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. This is the just the question of the things that make it difficult for us to see that our that our own thinking is faulty on the matter.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's start by saying, I think that this is generally true of long-standing forms of oppression where the discussion is confined to those in the group that is benefiting from the oppression and a good parallel here i think is the the dominance of men over women which has existed in so many societies and and for such a long time and if you assume as you know and you don't have to go back very far you go back to the to the 19th century and There's just an assumption that it's men who make the important decisions. The political politics is completely dominated by men. Women don't even have the vote in um, most countries. So uh, men are making all all those decisions and they see the idea that men uh, are dominant over women as, as natural. They see it in other societies, that males are the leaders. They take that for granted. They don't look at it critically and they all benefit from it in in various ways of course because you know the, they can tell the women what to do and uh, the women have no real choice they can't really leave or go anywhere else so you think about that situation and you can see how difficult it was there even though women did start to organize and and women could organize obviously had the capacity to to do that and uh, it was that movement, the suffragette movement and uh, early feminist movements that you know, together with support from some men led, led to the change. Uh, so then you, you add to it that you, know, you have a similar sort of idea that these things are natural, that it's of course it's natural for humans to use animals. You add to that the fact that we're actually eating them and that that's something that seems almost universal. And that, you know, for many, a long time, people believed that that was necessary, really, that they couldn't be healthy without it. And, of course, they didn't have as many options for their diet as, as we have now. And then the fact that the animals themselves are not able to organize um, a protest movement or any kind of opposition to that, then you can see how difficult it is to bring about change in respect of uh, our thinking about animals.
0: In Why Vegan, we read, quote, the logic of speciesism is the most apparent in the practice of experimenting on non-humans in order to benefit humans. This is because the defender of vivisection must stress the similarities between humans and other animals in order to justify the usefulness to the former of experiments on the latter, End quote. Could you talk to us quickly about this? What truth of our relationship to animals does the fact of animal experimentation lay bare?
2: Well, there are many different forms of uh, animal experimentation, of course. And so there's not a, a single truth, perhaps. But, but the, the point about the similarity of us and animals has to be there. Now, somebody could say, well, they're similar in anatomy and physiology, but not psychologically similar. And that's why if we want to learn things about um, our own anatomy and why things may go wrong, that's why it's all right to use animals. And indeed, if you imagine that animals had no consciousness, but were similar to us in a physical sense, that would be a reasonable thing to
0: do. If if perhaps there were no behavioral indications that they experienced pain. Exactly. That's right. But
2: it's interesting that, you know, particularly in the 20th century, of course, there was a huge rise in Experiments in psychology that used animals. Uh, all of these experiments about running rats through mazes and rewarding or punishing them for doing better, and much more distressing experiments about in which m- baby monkeys were removed from their mothers and put into sort of fake model mothers that abused them in various ways, that mistreated them, that, you know, pricked them with spikes that emerged from the from the cloth model mo- monkey's uh, body. And this was supposed to tell us something about, in, in this particular case, about you know, the importance of mothering and, and how orphans in institutions should be cared for and, and how to bring up normal children. But you know, once you do that, then obviously you're saying the, it isn't just the anatomy and physiology that's similar, it's the psychology as well. You know, like us, they're mammals. Like us, they need their mothers, like us, mothers have to be loving and caring. So now we've got a lot of we've got a lot of other parallels which are starting to raise this this point about, well, why is it that we're supposed to be justified in doing this with these animals whose psychology, um, whose, whose minds are similar to ours in various ways? Uh, and yet we could never, of course, do this with humans. That's why that kind of research shows speciesism so clearly
0: yeah i I think it's a very important point because because the scale of the animal agriculture industry is so vast i think that is where a lot of the attention is focused but it is when you turn your attention to experimentation and you frame it the way that you do the very justification for the experimentation is precisely that they're very similar to us physiologically, and they're also similar to us psychologically. So you have simultaneously you have the the presumably the animal agriculture people saying, "Well, I mean, either they say the suffering doesn't matter, or the, there's kind of unstated that they're not very much like us. Don't worry about it. You know, they're they're just things." But then in the lab, where science the science needs to be semi rigorous. It's the presupposed that the physiology is very similar. Otherwise, the drugs wouldn't work comparably. And also the psychological component must be similar. Otherwise, we wouldn't study the animals for those purposes.
2: Exactly. And of course, you know, these researchers uh, need funding for their research. So they have to put in grant applications and they have to say in the grant applications why this is important. And so they do, in fact, say this is important because it could help us to understand things about mothering, as I said, or or to take another horrible example, there was a model of depression that was produced in in dogs by putting them in cages where the floor could be electrified, the whole floor, so they could be subjected to inescapable uh, electric shock. And by repeatedly doing this, the dogs who initially, of course, would howl and would try and tack the cage and would urinate and defecate in the cage, uh, eventually they would give up and they would just lie on the floor and passively accept these frequent electric shocks. And so the researchers said, hey, we've produced a model of what they call learned helplessness, a a model of depression. And, you know, (laughs) how is this a model of depression unless the animal is suffering in the way that uh, humans suffer? And obviously they're suffering from the electric shocks as well. So, uh, I think it's, it's, it's very clear when these things were done that this was just a, a pretty blatant form of, of speciesism of saying, hey, they're not human, so we can do what we like to them.
0: And I, I can't remember if this is true in that specific case, but it's often true that after a result is ostensibly established in a scientific experiment, they will conduct more or less the same variations of the same experiment multiple times reconfirming or, or just tweaking a little bit the, the findings, but each time they're subjecting the animals to to this to these hardships.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and it, it is true with, with both of these, with both the learned helplessness and with the maternal deprivation experiments that I've referred to. Uh, there were many different variations of them going on. Um, and even today to some extent so those uh, maternal deprivation experiments uh, they're not going on in quite as brutal a form as they were but there were some experiments that were protested about quite recently within the last year or so that were part of that same vein of, of research
0: in why vegan we read about the the oxford group or the oxford vegetarian from reading your books i knew that you had had a transformative encounter while you were studying at Oxford. But until I read this book, I I didn't realize how large the group was and how many influential members it had, or how many people in the group. And I understand at the time you maybe didn't think of yourselves as the Oxford vegetarians, but nevertheless, a a number of people went off to to contribute. Could you tell us just just a little bit from your own kind of reminisce about, about those years and those people, the time you spent with them and how you all influenced each other? Yes, certainly. Um, it was, a, as you say, a transformative experience. And
2: I do write about it in, in Why Vegan. I'd like to mention that there's a book just been published, a, a full history of this. It's called The Oxford Group and the Emergence of Animal Rights, uh, an international history by uh, Robert Garner and Yawanda Okulea. So if people want to get the full story, that's the place to get it. And it's interesting that it has now you know, been recognized in this way as, a, as an important group of people. At the time, we were a group of friends. I already mentioned uh, Richard Keshen, who uh, started, got me uh, interested, the first person I talked to. And his friends, uh, he's a Canadian, uh, also Rosalind Godlovich and Stanley Godlovich, other Canadians who were involved in this. And, and there were other people, uh, Richard Ryder, wrote a book called victims of science and later became the leader of the reform group at the uh, rspca in in england the oldest animal protection society in the world and managed to bring them up to if you like up to the 20th century anyway because they would become fairly moribund Uh, so it it was it was a really interesting group of people and uh, i count myself as very lucky to have come into contact with them they they were a number of philosophers, but they weren't all philosophers. Uh, Richard Ryder was a clinical psychologist, for example, and and Rosalind Godlovich, who in a way perhaps you know had the biggest influence on me, uh, apart from Richard Keshen, was not as officially a student at all. She was there because uh, her husband Stan was a student, but she started writing about animals and made important contributions, although she never completed a... Well, she co-edited the book that I mentioned, Animals, Men and Morals, but she didn't really write... She wrote, published an article, um, but she didn't produce a book herself. But uh, I think that there were... You know, these people were very influential on me, and I think, you know, my thinking in some ways then reinforced some of the, the ideas that they had and put them in a, in a different kind of uh, ethical context, a more utilitarian context... But uh, it, was, it was an important group of people who I think none of us
0: individually would have achieved the things that we achieved as a group. It's, it's, it's a great chapter. I, I'm glad that I read it. I'm glad that you all found each other. I, the world is, is a somewhat better place for it. And I, thank you for letting me know about that book. I'm, I might try to speak to, to one or both of the authors of, of that book. In Why Vegan we read, quote, this book, despite its flaws, is a challenge to every human to recognize his attitudes to nonhumans as a form of prejudice, no less objectionable than racism or sexism. It is a challenge that demands not just a change of attitudes, but a change in our way of life, end quote. So in what ways would you like to see people change?
2: Well, obviously, I would like to see people change in terms of of what they eat, because the major form of suffering that humans inflict on non-human animals is in raising and producing them for food. So I would like people to change that, ideally to become vegan or or near vegan, or if that's too much, at least to avoid purchasing any factory farm products, because for the animals, that's the worst, Uh, and for climate, really, to avoid... Purchasing uh, beef and lamb because the ruminant animals produce more greenhouse gases than others. Those seem to me to be critical changes that could dramatically uh, improve the world uh, in terms of reducing suffering and slowing climate change and biodiversity loss. So, uh, you know, that would be the most important change that, that people can make. And then, of course, they can advocate for that among
0: others a concise answer i think across all of your writings there's there and of course the the broader animal literature there's there's a, a million things that we could all do but but that is a that is a great start if we could if we could get that far that would that would be enormous my final question and it's a somewhat personal one you published animal liberation in 1975 so 45 years ago much has changed since then but much has not changed since then. So I'm just curious, your own personal thoughts. In some, way, in some ways, we've come an enormous distance since then. Even since 10 years ago, where I live, the supermarket is transformed. And in other ways, it seems like progress is just glacial. Progress seems so slow. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts as to how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Well, let's
2: go back to to talk about how far we've come. To what I said early on, when you asked me about my background, and I said that I hadn't met a vegetarian, as far as I remember, uh, until I was a graduate student at Oxford. So, you know, can you imagine going through uh, Australian or British or American or generally European universities all the way until you're twenty four? and never having actually right. encountered a vegetarian. Um, you know, that's, that's a huge change. And so there's a whole lot of ideas out there that people are following that were not out there before. But what hasn't changed, of course, is uh, factory farming still exists. In some places, it's been slightly improved around the edges. Some of the worst forms of confinement that I talk about in Animal Liberation are uh, illegal in the European Union. They're illegal in the state of California and a few other states in the United States. But it still exists, basically, not very fundamentally changed at all. You can go online and see uh, videos of horrific treatment of animals in factory farms still continuing right now. And if you also take into account the fact that over these 45 years since I wrote Animal Liberation, many countries have become much more prosperous than they were, think of China in particular, and they're eating much more meat and uh, China has no national animal welfare laws at all, so essentially anything goes in terms of producing animal products in, in China. If it's economically efficient, it'll be done, even if it's horrendous for the well-being of the animals. Uh, so in that sense, you know, more meat is being produced and consumed now than was 45 years ago globally. And uh, we've gone, you could say we've gone backwards. You know, of course, it's good that people are more prosperous, but it's bad that they use that prosperity to support the abuse of animals and uh, to damage uh, the planet's atmosphere uh, and in ways that are harmful for their own health as well. So there's a long way to go, unfortunately, with with these issues, and, and that's why, to come back to the other point that we made before, I'm, I'm really hoping that either cellular meat or plant-based um, meat-like products will become economically competitive with animal products, uh, and that might see the reduction in the use of animal products that, we're, that we really need and that I'm hoping for.
0: I think that it's true, and this is entirely anecdotal statement, but I, I think that it's often true with with social movements that sometimes there can be kind of pressure building up and then there can be a tipping point and then change happens quickly. I feel that I've witnessed that in my own lifetime in terms of the gay rights movement, even in the United States, and the United States is a fairly conservative country. But my hope, my hope is that when we look around, we see, I, I know a good number of people that are vegetarian or vegan. And it's not just that I'm hanging out with animal liberation people. People are, people are starting to get it. These ideas are not strange to people anymore. So it's my hope that in the relative near future, we'll start to see that transformation happen, the tipping point where more and more people start to take, take the message in and it, and it becomes, it starts to snowball. But I, I don't know, but I I'm hopeful. Yes, I, I I share that hope.
2: I think uh, we could get to that stage. It's it's not going to be easy. It it does require more people to change the way they live than say the the gay rights movement did, which right. was really a way of saying, okay, so I'm going to be tolerant. I'll change my attitudes, but uh, it doesn't. I don't have to change my life to believe that people with a sexual orientation towards their own sex should have the same rights as. Uh, heterosexuals
0: there there's a there's a, a long way to go and there are significant hurdles but we we we're, we're, we're going to keep trying and i i i just i do think i think that we've seen progress i i think if we if we could see a curve i think it's it's steepening the curve is is you know it's gradually pointing more and more upwards i i'm hoping so thank you so much we've already taken up a lot of your time to wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
2: Uh, well, currently I am just reading the proofs of the uh, Golden Ass book that I mentioned, yep. and I do hope that a lot of people will read that. It's it's great fun, as well as showing empathy to animals. I think it's it's uh, a neglected, uh, extremely early novel that more people should know about and and would enjoy reading. I'm also, I've also got uh, plans for writing about global population. Is uh, the population growth a problem or is it not? There's some different views about that. And if it is, then what would be an ethical response to it? Uh, so I'm hoping that that will be my next major book, which I'm working on
0: with a couple of co-authors. Both of those sound fascinating. I look forward to them and maybe we could speak when those come out again certainly i'd be happy to do that peter your your book is a a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject and i highly recommend it to all of our listeners thank you so much for writing it for your time and insights today and just in general for everything that you've done uh it has been such a pleasure speaking with you thank you matt good to talk to you too i hope you've enjoyed this conversation I've been speaking with Professor Peter Singer about his 2020 book, Why Vegan? Eating Ethically. It's a wonderful book, accessible yet challenging, and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.